Uh, well, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to the book of John. John chapter 18. <clears throat> John 18. We're going to look at the last few verses of John 18 this morning. We've been here uh, for a few weeks, and we've been in John for a lot longer than that, several months. And uh, again, I've really enjoyed being able to walk through this book. It's, it's got to be one of my favorites, if not my most favorite. And I just love seeing the little uh, intricacies of beautiful gospel truth that we see sprinkled throughout uh, the book. Uh, you'll see my, the title behind me is A Purpose-Driven Death. I put three emblems up there. It's a, a cradle, a manger, right, the manger scene, and then a cross, and then uh, a crown. Um, if you couldn't tell that's a crown, that's a crown. It may look like a birthday cake or something, but it's a crown. Okay, I did the best I could on finding <laughs> what I thought looked like a crown. Uh, those three emblems, you know, when I, when I pulled those out, and really that's, that's the story of Jesus's life, right? Uh, the cradle, the cross, and the crown. There was a book that was one of our textbooks in seminary for a New Testament class, and it was called The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown. It was by a guy named Andreas Kostenberger, which is Sounds like a, a sandwich of some sort, right? Uh, Kostenberger, and it's a really, really, really good book. Um, a, a textbook, but one that really pulls out exactly what the title is. That Jesus uh, had a story that went from uh, a cradle all the way to an eternal uh, crown. Uh, me and my friends referred to that book by another name because uh, the title of the book reminded us of a, of a song from the 90s uh, by the late rapper uh, Tupac, and that was Cradle to the Grave. And so we called it Cradle to the Grave. So that's probably the first and last time you'll hear Jesus and Tupac sort of compared uh, in this pulpit. But funny enough, both that song and the book have the same general idea in mind, which is that the purpose of the lives that they describe, be it, again, Tupac or Jesus, uh, were established before they began. That's really the theme of Jesus' life, isn't it? That his, uh, the purpose of his life, whether you say determined or established, the purpose of Jesus' life was a sure thing, not just before the cross, not just before the crown, not just before the cradle even. We're talking about eternity past. The purpose of the Son of God's life was well established, right? When he arrived on the scene, we call it an advent because it was the rival of his life that was long anticipated. And that's something that we want to shout and, and celebrate, not just around Easter time, but any time that Jesus' purpose on earth was established well before the cross and the empty grave. But I want you to etch those images into your brain, the cradle, the cross, and the crown, because they remind us that Jesus was born for a purpose, and that's why we talk about the gospel at Christmas, right? But also that Jesus was killed and resurrected for a purpose and that's why we talk about the gospel at Easter but he also did those things to point us to an eternity in the future and that is that the purpose of Jesus's very existence is his eternal crown and that has a lot to do with you and me the kingship of Jesus is what we're going to see for the next couple of weeks in the book of John and what I want you to see is that there's sort of some irony here right what sort of king is publicly mocked spat upon, mock, given a mock crown of thorns, scoffed at, stripped naked and shamed, and yet the irony is he is called victorious and wrapped not in shame but in splendor. What was meant for shame by some resulted in glory, resulted in worship. You see, our king's death was his glory, and so as we look at our passage this morning, the question is, where do we fit into the picture? You see, his clear purpose should be our current perspective in this life as we await our next advent. Look at John 18 with me. We're going to look at verses 33 through 40, continuing the narrative that we've been in for some time. So, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If, it was, uh, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist, your translation may say. John thrives on irony. We've looked at that quite a bit where things may seem down, but they're up, and things may seem down, but they're actually, uh, may seem up, but they're down. Up is down, down is up. Jesus is the greatest, and yet he washes his disciples' disgusting feet. Peter is outspokenly loyal to Jesus, even to drawing a sword for him, and yet he betrays him three times in a matter of one hour. Jesus is innocent, and yet he is murdered in a brutal way. Je- the Jews were wretched and spiritually filthy, and yet they wouldn't go into Pilate's headquarters so they could be ceremonially deemed clean and pure. You see what I mean? Irony is just interwoven throughout this entire narrative, and John is very heavy on it. Go and throw that map up there that we've been looking at for the past several weeks. Uh, this is kind of where we are, okay? So, again, we talked about the Last Supper there at number one. They left the city over to two, two and three at the very top where Jesus was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. And several of those chapters were not necessarily telling a story, but Jesus giving some sort of a farewell discourse where he's giving them final things, things I want you to hold on to, teaching moments for them. Then he's arrested, right? He's ambushed, which wasn't really an ambush. He saw that coming a long way away. And they drew him and took him to uh, a first trial in front of Annas, who is sort of an honorary high priest, where Jesus was slapped in the face, he was scoffed at, he was then taken to Caiaphas for sort of a mock trial, and then finally was taken to Pilate. Pilate's place is the number six in the bottom left-hand corner down there. I don't know if you can really see it, but you can see the red roofs. It's kind of fancy. It's supposed to be sort of fancy. It's given a big land mass where a lot of uh, official things happened. A lot of money went into this sort of structure. The praetorium is what it's called. And so that was the place where Pilate did most of his business. It's also where his residence was, secluded and fancy and nice. And so Jesus is taken there for his trial. Now, he's already been sentenced to death. You can take that down. By the Jews, again, that mock trial and subsequently delivered over to Pilate. Now Pilate was a Roman governor and a judicial final say so and so look the reason I say that is the Jews could make a decision but their decision really meant nothing if the if Pilate I'm going to say the Pilate he's not a Pilate if Pilate didn't ultimately give the final say so and his signature on it. And we saw already that Jesus's innocence is highlighted and yet they wanted him killed but they couldn't do it themselves so they had to take him to Roman officials to get it done. Again the irony is the shameful and cursed method of death is highlighted. A cross, it's public shame, scorn, a curse. And yet we're going to see today that Jesus' cursed death wasn't a corner that he was backed into shamefully, but was the method through which he chose to be glorified. It's a purpose-driven death. We're going to see a couple of things here, and the first one is this, that that purpose-driven death was done 
to make the enemy abundantly clear. To make the enemy, our enemy, abundantly clear. Jesus' enemy abundantly clear. You know, Pilate went out to meet the Jews. That's what we saw last week. He went out and sort of gave Jesus, and this is Jesus. And what's, what's going on there? What's the accusation that you bring to him? Which is sort of a mockery in and of itself because he had to have some sort of foreknowledge of that considering he'd already deployed his own troops to go and take care of business because of this guy. And yet he brings Jesus back inside to speak with him in these headquarters, the man on trial, Jesus. And so Pilate seeks to get to the bottom of his accusation against Jesus because the Jews just said, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he didn't do some really gnarly things. And so he goes inside with Jesus and says, Let's talk about it. This is where we, go, where we are in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, Jesus' claim, rightful claim, was to be the Christ, was to be the Messiah. Now that's just not another name for Jesus. Those names have meanings, and they are the same meaning. Messiah is the Hebrew term for what is the same in Greek, Christ. It's the exact same term, and it means the chosen one, the anointed one. And there was a lot of things that came along with that. Namely, that he was the eternal king of God's people, right? He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. And this is what Jesus claimed himself to be. But it was also not just him that claimed this, but a, a massive crowd just a little while ago, one week earlier, attributed this same title to him. Remember Palm Sunday, which I'm not going to say the joke again, but it's Palm Sunday, right? We saw this uh, about uh, several months ago, but in the chronology, it was only one week ago when Jesus had a triumphal entry, which is appropriately named triumph meaning victory right jesus was given a triumphal entry because it was the entry of a victorious king right that's what that's what kind of a person got a triumphal entry is a victorious king a general who was defeating the enemy what they did was they laid their cloaks on the ground and see jesus sort of walked over these on the back of a colt now when they laid their cloaks on the ground this was exclusive for one type of person and it was a king there's little details woven in here that tell you this was a kingly entry. They also chanted something at him. Do you remember what it is? Maybe you've already heard these words or said these words to yourself today. They chanted, Hosanna, right? It means bring victory. Bring it to us. Bring us victory because he's the king. Hosanna. And then they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118, which, by the way, is a messianic psalm. I'm saying all this to say Jesus wasn't just saying these things about himself. A lot of people were saying it about him, tens of thousands probably saying this about him. We didn't read this in John, but one of the synoptic gospels tell us that the Pharisees, when they were chanting this, Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, a psalm exclusively reserved for the Messiah, the Christ. The Pharisees said, hey, tell them to stop. That's blasphemy. You're not worthy of that title. Tell them to hush. Do you remember what Jesus said in response? If I tell them to hush, the stones will cry out. It's his way of saying, they're not wrong, right? It would mean that he would be the great king of Israel from the line of David. The crowd's support was proven false, though, as Jesus was not the conquering king that they expected, but first a suffering one. He didn't fight Rome and usurp Caesar as they desired, but he was a conquering king and would be very soon. You see, despite all of this, Jesus did not outright say, I am the Christ. Notice he said, if they're quiet, the stones will say it. <laughs> he sort of had a way of doing some mental gymnastics, verbal gymnastics with people. And so he didn't outright say that, but it was very clear that he believed that. But then in our passage, we see something very political. 
Because if Jesus didn't himself claim that to be the case, then why does Pilate begin his accusation in this format? It's because this is the way it's been brought to him. Because Rome wouldn't care about a Jewish religious spat, but they would care about insurrection and a self-professing king. The Jews wanted the death penalty. And so what they come to Pilate and say is, Jesus makes himself a king, and that's your problem. Because if he's a king, that means he's coming for Caesar. And so Pilate, that's why he says in verse 33, well, what do you say? Are you the king of the Jews? Look at verse 34 and 35. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? The tone of Pilate's response whenever he's like, what, are you talking to me like that? Is someone taken aback, annoyed and bothered? What Jesus has said is, are you asking because they accused me or because you're starting to realize in yourself that I am a king? And Pilate is taken really aback. I'm not even a Jew, he's saying. I'm not a Jew, so I don't, I don't give a rip, to use a more current term. I don't give a rip what you're talking about. These guys are trying to kill you, he's saying. The Jews were accusing Jesus of being a king, and they were obviously trying to coerce Pilate into a prosecution, but Pilate wasn't an idiot. He knew that the Sanhedrin and the people that brought these charges, they weren't truly concerned with any threat to Rome unless they saw it first and foremost as a threat to themselves. And so he asks the question, what have you done to these guys? Your own people, your own nation has delivered you over to me to be killed. What, what am I missing here? Because I know they're not actually concerned for Rome. What did you do to them? 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus first tells him what his kingdom is not. Later he's going to tell him what his kingdom is, his nation, his kingdom. He says it's not of this world. What he means by that is it's not a matter of territory. It's not a matter of political power. His point is if it were a matter of territory and land or political power or some sort of strong-arming and taking some sort of thing if it were like that there would be right now we wouldn't be having this conversation he's saying there would already be a violent upheaval and all of my people those thousands and thousands that have been chanting hosea not hosea hosanna they'd be here fighting for me think logically the insinuation of jesus is that it is because of his kingship that jesus will willingly die not in spite of it in other words jesus is right where he wants to be If this action was opposed to his kingship, there would be a fight against it. But the peace in his spirit is because he is in accordance with his father's will and what would bring his kingship the greatest honor. See, we know this to be true, that an act of heroism warrants praise and honor and celebration and devotion. We see this in pop culture, right? The movie like The Lion King, whenever Simba kills Scar, what's the reaction to that? The animals that are personified that do things like humans do, they start celebrating and chanting and honoring the new king. Because why? Because he's done something heroic to defeat the enemy, and their response to that is to say, the hero deserves our praise. Kids dress up as Spider-Man on Halloween, not because they like his outfit and colors, but because Spider-Man's a hero, because he's awesome. And so it warrants their praise and their celebration. We celebrate holidays, July 4th, Memorial Day, to honor and celebrate heroes who fought and even some who fell to earn victory over military foes. You know why? Because we celebrate acts of heroism. An act of heroism 
warrants praise and honor and celebration and devotion. And please hear me say this, church. It may not have been done with a sword or with superpowers, but Jesus' death was an act of heroism of the highest order. It's very important. Don't be fooled by his physical inaction and acceptance. Jesus is fighting. He is active, but he isn't fighting sinners. He isn't fighting Rome or the Jews. This is echoing his time in the garden, right? Jesus is fighting for sinners against the real enemy, and it's sin. He's active. He just doesn't need a sword for this fight. You see, sin has done something to your soul, to my soul, that no man could ever do. And it eternally destroys you. We come into this world condemned, eternally separated from a holy God. Sin has done something that no human being can do. And it's separated you from a holy God. And our efforts, yours and mine, are hopeless against it. We cannot strive and win our way out of that pit, in other words. But the good news of the gospel is that the cross of Christ was an all-out assault on the death wages of sin. And that's why we sing that Jesus paid it all. Far more than being concerned with a kingly fight against sinners or a nation, Jesus was focused on a kingly victory over sin. And he won. And like a true hero, he is worthy to be praised, church. We read about this in Philippians 2, which is maybe the height of a declaration like this. In verses 8 through 11 of Philippians 2, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen to this next part. Therefore, as a result, God has highly exalted him. He's lifted him up, bestowed on him the name that is above. How many names? Every name. So that at the name of Jesus, listen, this only happens to kings. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what that means? Supreme, higher. There is no higher. I say all that to say the triumphal entry is appropriately named. He's the victorious king. The king of kings. And he came not to make war on sinners but to make war on sin. And if he is your king, join the fight. His fight. Join his fight. Something that has really struck me in the last few years, and maybe it's just with age you become a little more observant, I don't know, but it's how many pagan religions outdo us in devotion. And I've mentioned this before. How many pagan religions, vanities, empty gestures, outdo God's church in devotion. They pair up and go door to door fearlessly and boldly evangelize a false gospel. They adhere to strict dietary restrictions to maintain a holy standing that isn't even real. They pray five times a day facing Mecca. Islam is celebrating right now the season of Ramadan. Muslims are celebrating Ramadan. You know what Ramadan is? It's a day of fasting. They do it for 40 days, all of them, devoted followers of um, Allah, disciples of Muhammad. 40 days of fasting, sun up to sundown. That's what Ramadan is. My sister and her family and his two little kids, they live in the Middle East in a very densely Islamic area, nation. 
national law is Islam. And right now, during Ramadan, my nephew, who's two or three, I think, um, isn't allowed to go outside on their porch and eat a snack because his parents will get arrested for it. They're devoted to emptiness, and yet they are devoted, are they not? All because they are nationally extremely devoted to their God, a false God, a false God that they believe has real holiness and real wrath. And listen, it is an empty vanity. And yet we serve the God of real holiness and real wrath that has extended real amazing grace to us. And instead of us being people that take up strongly devotion, we are more dominated by apathy, laziness, taking advantage and abusing the character of our God who is a gracious God. Instead of abandoning selfish ambition, we elevate it and abuse grace, God's grace, as we walk over him like a doormat who we know will receive us back because of this grace clause. We hoard our time, energy, and at times even what we call our money. Instead of using all three to serve God and serve others as devoted unto him. We preserve our reputation, our comfortability, instead of being willing to put them on the line if it means that our real God that we're devoted to is glorified. We idolize our comfort instead of living for something more than pleasure-seeking through whatever means, whatever objects we use to fill our cups. But we're doing so with a hole in the bottom because none of it will. It's all because we lack devotion that pagans have for something that isn't even real. Because grace, right? Church, I'm saying this as an offender over here. Don't use grace as a license to not be devoted to following Jesus. Grace is not, in other words, a checking account that we spend, spend, spend because it's there. And our Father just keeps dumping money in because he's a real sucker. Grace is not a checking account. It is an emergency fund. And we spend it, when we spend it poorly, we dishonor the Father who will always receive us with loving open arms. And yes, bail us out when we fall short of the glory of God. That is the good news. But it is not a reason for us to not be devoted to our Lord and Savior. Honor your king by loving what he loves, despising what he despises. And along those lines, loving what he loves, I would just implore you, don't join the wrong fight. Your lost neighbor, your lost coworker is not your enemy. They are your mission. They're not a fight for you. They're a mission for you. Love what God loves, and that means people created in the image of God. Your professing Christian classmate or coworker that is the bane of your existence is not your enemy. They are your mission to love them as God loves them. Love what God loves despise what God despises. Do we do that? Do you do that? There's a not yet sense in which we daily make war on sin, and that's what we've just talked about, right? Taking up the fight. Jesus has, has won that battle, won the war, right? Praise God for that. But we need to take up that fight daily because we still deal heavily with sin, don't we? The good news of the gospel is that though the daily weight of sin is present, the eternal weight of sin is already eternally vanquished. And that's the second thing I want to talk about today. That Jesus' purpose-driven death was to make the truth, the truth, it's underlined, I believe, abundantly clear. The truth. Notice I didn't say a truth or his truth. I'm talking the truth. 
to make the truth abundantly clear. Jesus has said already what his kingdom is not, not of this world, right? Not about political power or territory. He will now say what his kingdom is about. But before Pilate, or before he does rather, Pilate responds to his initial statement. I think that this is kind of interesting. Look at verse 37. He's just talked about his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. What kind of person talks about his kingdom? A king. And that's exactly what Pilate asked him. And so he says to him in verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. Pause for just a second. He says, Ah, so you are a king. So it feels like he trapped him. You're right, Jesus is saying. You're right in stating that I am a king. But there is a unique mission to his kingship on earth. Look at the last part of verse 37 there. You say that I'm a king. He's saying, you're right about that. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. So here's what his kingdom's all about. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's a big, that's a weighty statement, right? Anybody who actually knows, anybody who's in the know, knows the actual truth, they fall in line. They don't fall in opposition. They fall in line. If you're of the truth, he's saying to Pilate, if you're of the truth, you'll see who I really am. Jesus says, for this purpose I was born. There's the cradle, right? The purpose of my being born into this world, the purpose of all my life, the purpose of my kingship, he's saying, is to point people to the truth. Now, what is this truth that is the central theme of his life? Well, Jesus has already told this in the book of John, John 14, 6, and it's not on the screen, but I think you may know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's the truth? Jesus is the truth. What he's about is what is reality, no matter what anybody says against it. The truth is that he is the only way by which men can come to the Father and be saved from their own sin, which is what we see illustrated, by the way, in the very next verses. Look at verse 38. Pilate says to him, this is a very Greek question, a very philosophical question. He says, hmm, he says, what is truth? It's an interesting question, but it's sad because Jesus has just extended to him an invitation. He says, the people who are of the truth, they hear what I'm telling you right now, and they know what I'm talking about. And they join me. And then Pilate says, yeah, but I mean, what is truth? An invitation met with a dismissal. See, if Jesus' followers are characterized by allegiance to his testimony, the truth, rather than violent upheaval, then what's now happening is Pilate has no choice but to recognize that Jesus is the victim of the Jews' plot, not the criminal. Because what he's very clearly said is, this is not a waging war thing. I don't even want land. I don't want notoriety or power. I, I literally just want to say, the truth is my agenda. The truth. And Pilate hears that and says, the truth is what you want? Okay. If you're not a threat to Caesar, then this is done with. And that's exactly what happens next. After he said this, the second part of verse 38, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. You see, Pilate understood Jesus' response to be, yes, I am a king, really meant, no, I'm not a king in any political sense that could endanger the empire. So he has to say, not guilty. And this is where the passage really grows teeth, I think. Look at verse 39. But you have a custom, Pilate says. Man, that but is so despair driving. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews. The background here, the cultural background, is that at this time of year, the Passover, which, man, we already talked about the rich doctrine behind that and the 
we're not going to go into it, but man, it's the gospel Passover, right? But this thing, this cultural moment is that Pilate brings up a procedure of release. He seems to be doing this to both save face with the Jews and giving them an opportunity, uh, but also to protect his own skin. And so he calls Jesus the king of the Jews, which is a little bit of a, a snark, right? But he does that for provocation, but he also compares Jesus with maybe the most ruthless criminal in their holding. And so what he's done is saying, all right, do you want Barabbas, who is the worst of you, do you want this awful, awful criminal? Or do you want the king of the Jews? Do you hear the juxtaposition there? Do you want, back into your society, the worst offender of the law? Or do you want this harmless guy that calls himself a king? They cried out again, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas, now, Barabbas was a robber. See, Jesus was innocent. Barabbas was a guilty man. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, which is rare to find something that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And the reason I say that is because this is a very significant detail to the story. John calls him an insurrectionist or a robber. Either one of the terms fits because the other Gospel authors call him a thief, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. He's part of a surely was part of a violent rebellion against authority which is why rome locked him up part of a violent rebellion against authority so the jews chant for the innocent son of god to be murdered in the stead of a violent rebel against authority and please hear this this is the truth to which jesus came to testify that he would take the place of the prisoner hear that again now this is the truth that he would come to take the place of the prisoner. You and I were Barabbas in the story. Violently in rebellion against authority, a holy God. And Jesus says, I'll take the punishment and you can take the liberty. I've started to harvest a lot of uh, illustrations at our dinner table. In fact, I, my phone's down there, but I have a note on my phone, and whenever one of my kids does something that's noteworthy, I just jot it down and say, I'll use that one day, right? And so here's one that happened recently. We were at the dinner table, and uh, my daughter, who just scampered out of here just a minute ago to go to Children's Church, she loves when I talk about her in the sermon. I think she has a vanity problem. Um, I don't know where she gets that from. So we were, uh, we were getting ready, and this is now a habit. She does this every time this happens, but um, she will come into the kitchen. Okay, dinner's ready. She'll come into the kitchen, and she has this, I would call it a sixth sense, but I guess it's just her nose, but he, she knows, pun intended, if there is macaroni and cheese in the air, okay, and not in a good way. She comes in, and it's almost like she's been exposed to some sort of toxic gas, and she's like, oh, 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 not mac and cheese, because her counterpart, her brother, loves it. I mean, he would just take an IV and just inject it and just live on it. But she comes in and really gets dramatic, and I don't know where she gets that from either. Um, but she's always really overacting whenever mac and cheese is in the room. She's very offended by the offensive odor. And she, the funniest thing, when she first did this, we're like, what is your problem? You used to love mac and cheese. And she, would, she sits at the very end of the table, um, as far as she can away from Zion, her brother, because of how offensive the odor is to her nose. And she'll say, I'm going to sit over here. And Zion will come down because he wants to sit by his sister. She's like, no, 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 I'll go over here. And she'll get as far away from him as she can. 
And it's funny to us, and we always laugh because she's so sensitive to it, and I think it's just one of those funny things that makes Shiloh Shiloh. But uh, she finds that to be an offensive odor, and she's repulsed by it. And I know that's a silly way to go into a very serious point, and that is that the Bible talks over and over again about sin and righteousness giving off an odor. That righteousness is an odor pleasing unto God. Sacrifice is a lot of times in the Old Testament that is meant to please God. It's, it's, it's always talked about as an odor that is pleasing, but sin is not like that. Sin is rancid, disgusting, it's repelling against God. It talks about the odor of our sin is offensive to him. He's sensitive to it. It's more foul than you and I will ever realize. And the reason I say that is to say that apart from the work of Jesus, you are foul. You and I, God sits at the other end of the table. He cannot be with that. That's why he told Adam and Eve they had to leave the garden, not just go to the other side. They had to get out because sin is offensive to a holy God. And it's because he is righteous in every way, not because he's mean, but because if he's holy, he cannot be around sin because it would tarnish. Well, then what gives? You see, sin is not just doing bad things, church. It is a stench of insurrection, rebellion against our authority, a holy God. Guilty as charged is what we are. The wages of sin is death, and we've earned it, separated from God. But please hear this. Jesus became death so that we could be free, given a seat at the table. 1 Peter 3.18, this is a good one. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Does that sound like the, the exchange that just happened right there in front of Pilate? The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Praise God. This is the part that really jumps out to me. The name Barabbas. You can bring that verse down. I'm not going to read the rest of that. The name Barabbas Let's do our, our intellectual uh, look at this, right? You ever heard of the term Simon Bar-Jonah, right? What does Bar mean? It means son of. So Bar, we see Bar in Barabbas' name, son of. We say Abba, Father, right? What does that mean? What does his name mean? What? Son of the Father. The name of Barabbas, the guilty one, his name literally means son of the Father, could there be anyone less worthy of the title? And Jesus, the true son of the father, became guilty that Barabbas, son of father, could be liberated. Guys, listen. Jesus, the son of God, became death so that you and I could be called sons of God. We're Barabbas in the story. Criminals, insurrectionists, awful rebels against authority, but God calls us sons and daughters. The gospel. And it's shouting here. You see, Jesus' desire was and is to bear witness to that truth, the truth. The greatest way to honor Christ as your king then is to declare that same truth to yourself and to others. 
to yourself, or rather to others, to live missionally, to be on a mission of rescue. We are on a rescue mission. Listen, how hateful does one have to be to have the cure for a fatal disease and withhold it from those who are perishing? How hateful do we have to be to withhold the good news of the, the captive going free and being liberated from sin and say, I'll keep that, and see if people perish in an eternal condemnation? How hateful does God's church have to be to do that? To have the way of rescue and let people suffer without it, man. We're called to love others and be about the same truth, the same mission that Jesus was about. We also preach that to ourselves, though. The same truth, preaching to ourselves that we are not just going to be evangelistic for the truth, but we are also sanctified in truth. We've already read this from John 17, 19, just a few weeks ago. And for their sake, Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, I consecrate, set myself apart that they also may be sanctified, set apart in the truth. John 17, 17, just two verses before that says, sanctify them, speaking to the Father, in the truth, your word is truth. And I talked about this then and I'll mention it again now. It does not say your word is true. That somehow your word lines up with a standard of what is the truth. No, no. God's word is the truth standard. Our world wants so badly to believe the truth is relative. That, listen, the idea of my truth or relative truth is insurrection of the worst kind because it is spitting in the face of the Christ who died mere hours after identifying himself as the truth and the life. And I'll just say this, do not be duped by the culture of gender fluidity, sexuality that is constantly evolving, of a purpose that is shifting to and fro, and this is your purpose, or this is your value. Don't be fooled by theology that begins with, well, it's 2022. Anchor yourself in the solid rock. Turn from a lifestyle of insurrection and live the name that you've been assigned unworthily Barabbas son of the father but when you fail be reminded that you no longer bear the penalty you will fail but be reminded that Barabbas was liberated because Jesus took his punishment church that death served a purpose long established before the cross before the cradle it was determined that there was a crown reserved for our king and someone in this room needs to hear this you don't have to be a prisoner to guilt to shame to hell to sin you don't have to be a prisoner to that anymore because Jesus has taken your place and you hold a burden that you do not have to hold because Jesus paid it all you can be set free because the king has defeated your enemy and so the response today we're going to go into the Lord's Supper I'm going to close with this question Today, whether you're re-upping a commitment or making it for the first time, will you make him your king?